The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Last week we had Derek Brown. He preached on uh, John. We got one right here to your left, Robert. Um, We heard from the words of Jesus in John 5. Sobering reminder. The week before that was don't take advice or counsel from the world. From those who don't use the Bible. That was Psalm 1. And we've had the privilege to look at a couple other uh, topics that are relevant for today from Scripture. On Mother's Day, we looked at 1 Peter 3 on the role of a woman of God, but in particular, a godly wife. And that, that was convicting truth from the Bible. To be honest with you, ladies, the standard that I preached regarding women was a perfect, impossible standard because it was in the Bible. That's what God wants you to aspire for. So if you felt a little guilt or conviction, that's good. That's the spirit of God working on your heart to stretch us, help us grow. None of us are perfect. And I did promise you that the guys, they're going to get theirs on Father's Day. And two barrels, part one and part two. So that's what we're doing today. We're looking at uh, the man of God. We don't always do this on Father's Day. Sometimes we're just going through a book of the Bible, but we have one last opportunity, I think, just to look at some important topics, particularly from God's word that affect our lives today before we get back into a New Testament book, which is going to happen in the month of July, where we'll be looking at uh, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, what Jesus says about the church, what Jesus says about the church. There's only one person allowed to criticize the church. His name is Jesus. That's what he does strengths and weaknesses so we can really benefit from that what does jesus want in the church and then after doing those first three chapters we're going to go to one of the gospels we haven't done yet so that when you come to church every sunday we all we're hearing from is jesus isn't that wonderful the lord jesus so uh until then let's look at what god expects of men so the sermon of the day i call the traits of a godly man part one because next week i'll pick up part two And I don't know how many points I'm going to cover today. I have seven here. That doesn't mean we're going to cover seven today. We'll have 10 or 12 by the time we're done, maybe more to include next week. Um, Not all of these seven points today about the traits of a godly man are for fathers. Some are. All of them apply to you if, in one way or another if you're a male. It is 2019, so I actually have to explain what that means. A male. 20 years ago, I didn't have to explain that. But that's where we are. Actually, that's one of our points of the seven. But if you're... So this applies to you if you're not a father. So if you're in uh, junior high or high school and you're a young man, this applies to you. Every one of these points is relevant to you. It's relevant to you whether you're a Christian or not, too, by the way, because these are God's expectations. This is what God has laid down. This is not Pastor Cliff's opinion. This is what the Bible says. But if you're also a husband, they're relevant to you as well in some similar ways, but also in some unique ways. Um. If you're single, they apply to you. If you're young or old, they apply to you as a man. If you're a woman, they apply to you in terms of your relationship with other men, whether you're a mom raising up boys. Here's what God's word has to say about what a young man of God should aspire to. 
so they're relevant for mothers, particularly with young boys, or maybe you're in the process of raising boys, young men. Maybe you're a female and you're single and you want to be married someday, and this is what you look for. If you're a Christian woman and you're single and you're looking to get married, these are the traits you should be looking for in a man because these are traits that God has laid down that are to be expected of what a godly man looks like. This is not, none of us can be all of these at the same time. This is God's standard. These are things we aspire to. So no one here is going to be all of these things all the time perfectly. But by God's grace, every single one of these can be fulfilled to certain degrees at different times. And it's an ongoing goal that we have. It's something we press on towards our whole life. The Christian life is a race. And it's a marathon of a race. Many times in the New Testament, the Christian life is called a walk. You keep pressing on. You fall down, you get up, you keep going. And it takes a long time. And we make progress by God's grace. We fall down. We have mishaps and mistakes and sinful setbacks. But by God's grace, we get up. Others help us. We keep pressing on. So I need to emphasize that too. We're not trying to be legalistic here. But we want to be realistic. This is what God expects. God expects things from believers. The reason he does is because he empowers Christians to reach those goals and to aspire towards those goals and to have those hearts desires toward that end by his grace. So these things can be achieved. These things can be general patterns in our life and desires of our heart that make a difference in our life and allow us to grow. So I don't want you just to check out if you're not a male today, this morning. Because if you're a Christian, there is some sphere in which you can apply these truths very directly. Maybe it's even just praying on behalf of the men of God and the boys you know in your life, even if you don't have ongoing interaction with them. It could be people in your church, in your small groups, your ministries, the elders or the pastors of your church. They have qualifications. They can't meet those qualifications on their own. They need God's grace. They need the Holy Spirit. They need people praying for them. So there's many ways to apply these truths. So let's go ahead and look at these that I call traits of a godly man. And they aren't given in any particular order except for maybe the first three that I thought were foundational. That before you can figure out what God wants of you and expects of you, if you're a male, if you're a young man, an older man, and you're a Christian... Before you can really do that, what does God want me to do? You need a proper theology of yourself and a proper theology of being a man. This is called a biblical anthropology. Because if you're looking to the world or listening to the world, it is messed up. It is skewed. It is warped. It is perverted. It is distorted. So we need to go back to the basics, absolute fundamentals of what the Bible clearly teaches on what it means to be a godly man. Again, not a perfect man, but a godly man. Someone who loves God. It is the direction of your life, not the perfection of your life that we're talking about here. So let's go ahead and start with point number one on the traits of a godly man or what it means to, to be a man of God. Number one, the man of God knows Jesus personally. That's where it all starts. See, I told you we we're going to go back to the basics. 
the man of God knows Jesus personally. I do want you to look at John 17 if you have a Bible. Otherwise, I'll just read it to you. It's all about knowing Jesus Christ personally. I mean, think about Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. Yes, he was a man when he came to earth, but before being a man, he was always existed as almighty, eternal God, the creator of the universe. He's the judge of the universe. He is infinite. He is almighty. He has all the attributes of God. That is Jesus. You can know him personally closer than you know anybody in your life right now on earth. You can know Jesus closer than you know your spouse, than you know your children. Really? That is the promise of Scripture. That's the reality of the Bible. That is the distinctive of biblical Christianity. There is no other religion on planet Earth where you know your God or you know your Savior personally and intimately. I don't care what religion it is. You don't have a personal relationship with Buddha if you're a Buddhist. You don't have a personal intimate relationship with Allah or Muhammad if you're a Muslim. They just they don't talk that way and their theology doesn't teach that. Christianity is unique that way. It provides the greatest level of intimacy possible. And if you're a Christian, it starts with knowing Jesus personally. Knowing, meaning not just head knowledge, but knowing from a Hebrew mindset. Know many times meant the most intimate relationship is how the word know is often used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. To know. Starting in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where Adam knew Eve and she conceived a child. That kind of intimacy. Or in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the age, when Jesus is judge and he's judging souls one by one, and there are those who he grants to go into heaven, and there are others, he says, No, you professed me, you pretended to be a Christian, but you never were. I never knew you, is the word he uses, knew. So this is the deepest kind of intimacy in terms of one person relating to another. And you can't do anything as a man of God. None, points 2 through 7 or 2 through 14 cannot be done and mean nothing if this, number one, is not true in your life. You have got to know Jesus personally. John 17, Jesus, the end of his life, he's 33 years old. He's about to die and give his life through crucifixion. It's a day before his death or the very night of, and he is praying to the Father who is in heaven He's talking to the father. This whole chapter is a prayer to the father. And he says in verse one, father, the hour has come for me for me to die. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I'm about to be obedient to death. Verse two, even as you gave him me authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. You've designated me to be the savior of individual souls. I'm going to die so that those who are forgiven might have eternal life. And then he defines eternal life in verse 3. This is eternal life. This is the only place in the entire Bible where eternal life is definitively defined. This is the clearest expression and definition of what eternal life means. And it is given by Jesus himself. Typically, people think eternal life, they're aspiring for eternal life, they want to live forever. And the main thing they're thinking about is the longevity of life or the quantity of life. Or life that just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. That's not what Jesus is about to define eternal life as. Eternal life is the quality of life. It's not the quantity of life necessarily. Every soul that's born into this world will live eternally, either in heaven or hell. 
So it's not just about timelessness or quantity. It is the quality of life. And Jesus says in verse 3, this is eternal life. This is the essence of it. He defines it. Well, what is it? That they, sinners, may come to know you. There's where eternal life starts. Knowing, coming to know the creator, God the Father. We don't know God the Father when we're born. We are born sinful. We are born wicked. We are born separated from God the creator because of the sin that we have inherited. We are born children of wrath, the Bible says. This is terminology from the Bible. This isn't me. This is not my opinion. Sounds harsh, but it's the truth. It's what God has said. That's how we're born. We are born children of wrath. We are born literally in the family of Satan. We operate according to the prince of the power of the air. We are born dead in trespasses and sins, totally unresponsive to God apart from his intervention and grace. That's how we're born. We aren't born Christians. We aren't born spiritual. We aren't born liking and loving God. We aren't born God's friend. We're God's enemies when we're born. That's why Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. He said that pointing his finger to the most religious man of his day. You must be born again. And when you're born again, you receive eternal life. Well, what is eternal life? It is knowing God. It is knowing the creator the right way. Not only knowing God the Father, the only true God, but also knowing Jesus Christ. There it is. That is eternal life. Knowing God the Father and knowing Jesus Christ, coming into a personal, intimate relationship with God the Father through his blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't have a relationship with God the Father apart from knowing Jesus Christ, his Savior. There is only one way. Salvation is exclusive in the Bible. It is only through Jesus Christ. That is clear. Jesus said it himself in John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father who is in heaven except through me. And the, the book of Acts says the same thing in Acts four twelve. Salvation has been given through one name and one name only under heaven, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would challenge you this day to really examine, do you know Jesus Christ personally? Do you love him more than any other? Are you committed to him? Is he your friend? Is he your elder brother? Is he your Lord? Is he your savior? Is he your greatest priority, your greatest heart's desire, all that you long for? You want to know him more. You want to know him closer and better. You live for him. He owns you. He is your or you are his. That's the heart's desire of a true Christian, of somebody who actually knows Jesus Christ. It starts there. You can't be a man of God or somebody who pleases God without starting there. By the way, the Bible's clear about there's only two kinds of people in the world. Only two. Unfortunately, today in America, we're getting all this stuff foisted on us about all these divisions. Social status, race, this, that, whatever. No, there aren't all these categories. There's only two categories. It's believers and unbelievers. It's very simple. Jesus taught on that very clearly. You either know me or you don't. You're either a child of God or the Father, says John chapter 8. Or Jesus said in John chapter 8, 42, 44, and following, he said, if you don't know the Father, then you are a child of Satan. That's it. Those are the only two options. That's sobering. We need to hear it. So are you in God's family? Are you a child of God? If you're not sure, you need to be sure. You need to bow the knee. You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to embrace Jesus. You need to cry out to him as your Savior and be saved, really. Or maybe you know you're not a Christian. Then whether you believe it or not or realize it or not, then that means you're in the family of Satan. Satan is your father. 
The only reason I say that is because that's what Jesus explicitly said. He says it in John chapter 8. He says it loudly at the top of his lungs in public to everybody. So it starts there. Do you know Jesus? And when you come to know Jesus and bow the knee to him and he becomes your Lord and your Savior, he changes you. He saves you. He forgives you of all of your sin because he died for you. He was your substitute. He absorbed the wrath of God the Father upon himself in your behalf, the sinner who deserved God's wrath. Jesus died for you as Savior, and then he changes you, and he adopts you spiritually into his family and supernaturally in a moment of time when you believe in the gospel. And it's not by any works that you do or that anyone does. It's the work of Jesus and him alone. We can't save ourselves by any good works. Going to church, praying, being a do-gooder, that doesn't do it. It's only the work of Jesus Christ that can save you. And once you do get saved by recognizing your sin and the need of a savior by God's grace through Jesus, once you do get saved and you're adopted supernaturally into the family of God and become a son or daughter of God, then God gives you so many wonderful gifts. And one of the promises to a Christian is once you get saved, according to Second Corinthians 5, is that God makes you a new creation. Man, amen to that. Absolutely. A new creation, and Paul goes on, old things have passed away, all things have become new, starting with your new nature, starting with the Spirit of God who lives in you. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then just the, the blessings and the promises of God just pile on from there, and then you come to know God truly for who He is for the first time, only after you become a Christian. Then and only then can you fulfill the greatest commandment that there is, the greatest commandment in the Bible. It's in Mark. It's also in Matthew. It's also in Luke. Jesus told it what it was. What is the greatest commandment? Mark 12, 30 is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. What does that mean? With everything you have in every conceivable way. You can't do that unless you know Jesus personally. If you know Jesus personally, you can actually do that and fulfill it. It's amazing. Blessed gift from God. So that's where it starts, man. Do you want to be a man of God? Well, here's your foundation. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? If you do, then you can rest in that irrevocable truth. Let's go on to number two. Man of God knows Jesus personally. And then number two, the godly man knows his God-given gender. The godly man knows his God-given gender. I had to add this one. I've taught on the the attributes and the characteristics of being a godly man for the last literally 30 years in different contexts. And this week I had to add this one. Because this just used to be assumed, that you know your gender. Facebook lists 58 different genders. Yeah, it is laughable. <laughs> uh, but if you're not a you know, familiar with Facebook, it's been up there for a while. If you're a Christian and you're not exposed to all the junk coming through the tube and everything else in the world, then, and you've been a Christian for a long period of time, and you know what the Bible says, this is just, it seems like a joke. Do people really believe this? They do. Unfortunately, the majority of the world is being brainwashed with this ideology that's from the pit of hell, literally. Christians are even succumbing to it and being deceived by it. And we have gender confusion among people in the church. That's why I thought it was so important to go back to Genesis when we did to look at the basics of what it's all about. How did God start this world? And what was his mandate for humanity? And how did he create us? So 
If you want to be a man of God, then the godly man knows his God-given gender. You are male. God made you that way. He made you that way from the beginning. He made you that way while you were in the womb. He made you that way at the most minute, most detailed level, at the level of your very DNA. And from your genetic code, you're either male or female. There are no other options, according to the Bible. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. On day 6, God is creating everything as he intended. It's a historical account. And on day 6, God creates the apex of his creation, which is humanity, the human race, the first two people who will reflect his image to the rest of creation. And God said, let us make man in our image. God said, God... Elohim said, let us make man. That's a plural. That's the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, let us make humanity. Let us make the human race in our image. Let, let's create people who reflect us perfectly in terms of our attributes. And personhood, really, is the main emphasis there. And then verse 27 says, so God made man in his image. And he made them in his image. He made them male and female. There it is. That's it. Those are the only two genders. Those are the only two options. And God makes every single one of us either a man or a woman, male or female, and there's nothing in between. And you can't change the way God made you. You can't change your DNA. You can't change your genetic code. The Old Testament goes on to preserve this gender identity that is binary. It's only male and female in the image of God. There's so many different reasons uh, why a Christian can't think otherwise. Probably the most fundamental foundational reason is to believe in two genders, male and females, because God gave us the definition of humanity in Genesis 1 and 26 and 27, and that's what he said. That's how he created humanity. It's male and female. But also with that, he defined what the image of God is. The image of God is fully reflected in a man and woman together. That's it. Because a man and woman together reflect all the communicable attributes of God. If you distort the image of God in humanity, then you distort the image of God as he exists. So this attack on gender identity really is a wholesale satanic attack on the very image of God. And you know what? Satan has been trying to do that since the fall, to attack the image of God, to attack at the most precious, important level. And that's the very identity of God. And the way he could pull that off is attack the very identity and the very nature of humanity, the way that God made them male and female. So male and female is the only pattern and image that God has given us that fully reflects his image of who he truly is, as the triune God. Man and woman together. And then the Old Testament goes on to preserve that even in the Levitical and Mosaic Code where God's, he has a lot of rules for men and males. They knew what that meant. And there were rules that were different for females as well at times, preserving that distinction between male and female. One very practical one is where he says in Leviticus, a man shall not wear woman's clothing. And a woman shall not wear man's clothing. And I, that reflects God's created order of male and female in his image. So if you claim to be a Christian, then you need to have this clear in your mind. There needs to be clarity. God either made you male and female, and if you are a man, you need to live accordingly. The New Testament speaks to this as well. Where Paul, through the Spirit of God, is addressing men and tells them, 
You need to act like men. Act like men. Why would Paul say that? Well, he said it to the Corinthians who lived in a, a very distorted and sexually perverted culture in Corinth. And so some of these men who got saved, they were transvestites. They were homosexuals. They were confused with their gender and their practices. Then they get saved. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is explicit about this. They get saved. They become new creatures in Christ. And then, Paul, they have to be educated of how God actually made you and how God wants you to function and what your role is and your very identity. You are no longer like that. You're a new creation. And God made you either male or female. And so that's one of the reasons why Paul says in Corinthians, if you're a man, you need to act like a man. Act in accordance of the roles that God has given you and the very DNA from which you sprang by God's design. So, Christian men this morning, if any of you are struggling with your gender identity, the reason is is because you're being deceived by the world. Who are, the question is, who are you listening to? What are you reading? You're being deceived by... That's 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not be deceived. Then he goes on to list these sins that deceive even Christians. Hence the importance of Psalm 1, not listening to godless counsel about such a fundamental and important thing. So embrace your manhood. And that's not synonymous with toxic masculinity. That's another phrase being bandied about now. We need to avoid toxic masculinity, whatever that means. Usually what they mean is traditional roles of male and female, usually. In other words, (laughs) the biblical model of Male and female is what they say. We need to get rid of that. No, we don't. We need to embrace it. We need to be re-educated about what it means. It's absolutely foundational. So act like a man, the man that God has made you. So know Jesus personally. Know and embrace your God-given gender. Number three, a man of God knows he's finite and fallen. Finite and fallen. As far as finite... What that means is we need to remember that we need to be put in our place. We, we are the, the creature. God is the creator. We're finite. God is infinite. Because we're finite, we're limited. Because we're finite, we are contingent beings. Because we're finite, we are dependent upon God. Because we're finite, we are not self-sufficient. Because we are finite, we are needy people. Coupled with the second point there, we are fallen. Adam was finite before he sinned. Then he sinned and inherited a sin nature, and then he was finite and fallen. And that's our condition. Even though those of us who are saved, we're still finite and we're still fallen. The fact that we are fallen means we battle with sin daily. That's Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. In Romans 7, 14 through 25, Paul writes his autobiography, And his status as a Christian. And what he writes there is he admits that he's a sinner. Yes, I am saved. Yes, all my sins have been forgiven. Yes, I'm even an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yes, I can walk by the Spirit of God. Nevertheless, in terms of my very identity as a man, apart from the help of Christ, I am a sinner. And he says in that that passage there, even as an apostle, that sin lived in him, and it was inescapable, would live in him till he died. He looked... Within himself and all he saw was yuck. No good thing lives in me. Present tense. And he repeats that throughout that. 
till it reaches a crescendo and sin lives in me. And the very thing I want to do, I want to do good things for Christ, but I don't do the good things all the time. And the things I know I shouldn't do sin, I, I do it. And I get frustrated. Oh, wretched man that I am who will save me. That's his cry. That's the cry of every Christian. That's the cry of every humble man of God who knows who he truly is, that he is finite and he is fallen. We continually need to live by the grace of God from day to day, breath to breath. All of these things put together amount to the fact that the man of God is a humble man. Humble, humility. These these things should, should prompt humility in our lives, that we are needy, we're dependent upon daily the grace of God. But these are the marks of a true man of God. Think of some of the Old Testament men of God that were the strongest, most admirable and model men of God. Just start naming them. David. Oh, man, was he finite and fallen? Yikes. Okay, Isaiah. Well, Isaiah had the proper view of himself because in Isaiah 6, he, he just, he knew he was, he had wicked lips. He was a wicked man. Even the Apostle Peter in Luke chapter 5, Peter, strong man of God, the pillar of the church, the foundation of the church, he would get convicted properly about his own shortcomings. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a wicked man. This is true humility. But this is a proper perspective of self. This isn't a morbid self-introspection. This is an honest, objective, biblical evaluation of yourself and myself as men. We are saved, praise God. We're empowered with the Spirit, amen. We can be used by God to do great things. Praise the Lord. But we remain finite and fallen. Finite always and forevermore. Fallen, not forever, amen. But finite forevermore. Meaning even when we get to heaven, we're perfect. We will still be the creature. God will always be the creator. We will always be giving worship to him throughout all eternity. It's not about us. We're not going to become our own God of our own planet someday. We will forever be servants. And blessedly so. To the perfect triune God. So we have to have. So points one, two, and three are all about having a proper evaluation of yourself as a man. The way that you came into this world. The way God created you. Apart from that sin that we inherited through Adam. Because you can't function properly otherwise if you don't have a proper identity about yourself. You need to be realistic. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, there are things that we can do that God expects us to do. We can accomplish that God expects us to in obedience. And so let's go on to number four. Uh, The man of God is decisive. Again, these are not the next several aren't in any particular order. Some of them actually complement one another. But a true man of God in the Bible is someone who is decisive. He is good at making decisions. He means he has to plan. He has to think things through. He has to strategize. He has to analyze priorities. Uh, So much goes into decision-making. But God has intended men, males, to be decisive, to be decision-makers. That's just part and parcel of being a leader. The Bible is clear that God has men and intended men to be leaders, leaders in their own families, leaders in the family over their children, Leaders are the head of the home with respect to their wife, which is a blessing, not a curse. That's God's intention and design. And then leadership in the church is male. And there are qualifications for that. And at the heart of being a leader is being decisive. If you're a leader, you've got to make decisions. 
so we need to grow in this area, man. If you want to become a mature man of God, you've got to stop and evaluate yourself. So what kind of a decision maker am I? Am I a good decision maker? Am I a, not a good decision maker? Well, what's, what's not a good decision maker? Well, someone who procrastinates on deci- important decisions. Someone who puts off important decisions. Someone who shies away or is cowardly of hard decisions. These are the opposite of someone who's passive about making decisions. Just a couple of verses to help us be decisive and to show that it's required of God. Romans 12, I could read verses 1 and 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Meditating on the word of God. Being moved along by the Holy Spirit will help you to be transformed in the way you think. This is this is the key. So that's the whole point in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is you need to have a godly mindset, a godly thought life informed by Scripture, prayer and the Holy Spirit so that you can make good decisions. Actually, Paul's terminology is so that you can prove what the will of God is. What does that mean? So that you can know very clearly what the will of God is in any given situation. That is actually objectively possible to know the will of God. You mean I can know the will of God for any given situation? Yes. How do I know that? Because it's in Scripture. You got like seven or eight verses that say, this is the will of God. 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 Be thankful. This is the will of God. Abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God. And there's like seven or eight of them that are actually practical and attainable. And you do all those and you're walking in the spirit. Okay, I'm in the will of God. Now that I'm in the will of God, it's a lot easier to make a decision, a decision that honors Christ. So that's Romans 12, too. So good decision making has to do with the discipline and the training of the mind, self-control of the mind and the input into your mind. You're getting legitimate information, biblical information. You're not being deceived. You're not being misled by the ways and the thought life of the world. First uh, Timothy three, two is a qualification for an elder. And this word here, prudent, literally has to do with your mind, the, the able the ability to think clearly so that you can make wise decisions, because as a shepherd, you have to make very important decisions because people's lives are at stake. Hence, that word in English, prudent, has to do with the way you think, being decisive. James one is most explicit where he says. If you don't have wisdom, seek God's wisdom, ask God for wisdom, pray to God, plead with God, God, give me wisdom. And he'll usually do that through another person and ultimately comes from the Bible, the word of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's where true wisdom comes from. Then you're ready to make a decision. And when you make a decision, be decisive. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't flip-flop. James' terminology is don't be double-minded. You think one thing one minute and the next minute you're flipping all over the place like a fish out of water. Flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop. That's not being decisive. That's being double-minded. And so James says, if you're double-minded and you're a Christian in terms of making decisions, flip-flopping all over the place, you're double-minded. And the double-minded man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. That's how important it is. If you're wishy-washy and not decisive. Okay, those of you who are dads and husbands, especially husbands of a family and children right now, man, you're, and you're a Christian. God has ordained you as the decision-maker. You don't make decisions in isolation. You make decisions with counsel, but you're the man. The, the, the buck stops with you and me on our shoulders. We can't be double-minded. Don't expect to receive anything from the Lord if you're double-minded. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. The man of God needs to be decisive. Well, why are we not decisive? 
I'd, I'd boil it all down to this. In my counsel and my own personal experience in times where I'm not decisive, it's fear. Fear. Fear of what? Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown manifests in certain ways. Fear of failure. Man, a lot of guys are just paralyzed because, oh, I don't want to fail. So they don't try anything and they don't make the decisions they need to make. Fear of failure, fear of mistakes, or fear of the consequences. That's where you actually know what the consequence will be. Oh, I don't know if I can handle that. But it's the right decision. Fear. Fear of consequences. Fear of rejection. You know that if you make this decision, even though it's the right decision, uh, some people aren't going to like you. Some people are going to complain. Some people are going to attack you. Some people are going to malign you. Some people are going to ostracize you. And therefore, you're cowardly and you don't make the decision or you make the wrong decision. It happens all the time. Don't do that. That's not a man of God. Rather, walk by faith. Walk by faith, not by sight, says Paul in Corinthians. And also, we're all going to make mistakes. So we can't be paralyzed and not make the proper decisions in terms of being decisive and fulfilling our role as males. We've got to make the decisions whether it turns into a mistake or not. And when you mess up, you just depend upon the grace of God and the grace of other people. Oops, and you learn from your mistakes, right? And also as a Christian, this beautiful thing, we can always rest and fall in the safety net of Romans 8.28. Isn't that awesome? Where God works all things together for good for those who love. God works all things, even your stupid decisions. He can work that for good. Well, God, you, you, you told me to be the decision maker. Yes. And I made a stupid decision. Yes. And I will use that for your good. Romans 8, 28. Sometimes we need help in this area, especially if you're new in the faith or younger man, or maybe you grew up in a home where you didn't have godly man discipling you, godly dad or other people. And, and you have to learn this in a remedial fashion, maybe kind of like me. I grew up 19 years, not in a Christian home, totally pagan home and life. Got saved at age 19. By God's grace, ended up at a good Christian school and a great church. I was out in Southern California. And it was during those times where I had a greater growing desire to go into the ministry maybe. And so I, I go into seminary and then I'm given some little opportunities to exercise some leadership, taking little baby steps. And I'm very fearful and very tentative and have no experience. And I, I just remember two men in particular during those formative years when I was in my mid to early 20s where I had little leadership opportunities at the big church I was at in children's ministry area. And, man, I learned big lessons about being indecisive. And the way I learned it was my mentors, older men of God pastors, literally had to tell me, wow, you were being really indecisive in that meeting. You can't do that, Cliff. That was one mentor I had it, uh, when I was involved in children's church, and I was supposed to be leading a team of like 10 leaders and we're at a leader's meeting, and he was there as a guest watching the way I conducted and led the meeting. And afterward, he just took me aside. Wow, that, you can't do that. You, you were fickle. You were ambiguous. You were tentative. You didn't make the decision. You didn't make it clearly. You didn't make the right decision. you got to be more assertive. I was like, whoa. Wow, you're being very assertive right now. You're, you're, you're hurting my feelings. But I never forgot it, and he was right. And within the same year, I had another. I was at a youth camp, children's camp, and I'm one of the assistant leaders. And then one session was designated to let me lead the leaders. And 
my mentor was there. This is a different guy, pastor at the church. And I'm talking and I'm, and we're supposed to have plans. We're huddle and make plans and ready, go break and, and go do our thing. And I'm just going on and on and on. And then the, my mentor, he just, he had had a, smoke was coming out of his ear. So I knew something was going to blow up. And he finally just said, what are you doing in the middle of the meeting? Make a decision. So he didn't have a lot of tact in doing that. So I didn't have to say you hurt my feelings because everybody else was saying you're probably hurting his feelings. Um, but here it is like 25 years later. I'm like, man, wow, that was huge. Thank you, God, for using those brothers. Thank you for their courage, their boldness. They're willing to speak up, man. And the impact it had a little kick in a to get me going. So we all need that to be decisive. And you know, when it's easiest to make a decision, even a hard decision, when these things are in order, uh, it's when you're walking in obedience to God. Walking in the spirit, Galatians 5, when you're being led by the spirit, when you're prayed up, when you received godly, reliable counsel, and you can be rest assured, I think I'm in the will of God, and then you can make that decision. So it's very liberating. You have the freedom to make a decision. Some decisions don't necessarily, they're not necessarily right or wrong. It's like, okay, where are we going to go to college? Here's our three options. We're a Christian home. We're a Christian family. We've been accepted to these three. Here's all the strengths and weaknesses. I kind of like something about all of them. And then you've got to decide. And the parents got to be a part of the process in leading the way. And choosing one out of three, if you choose one, that doesn't mean you made a wrong decision. Because it, it maybe it doesn't even matter. So you have freedom. If, if you know confident you're in the will of God, we're prayed up. It is a beautiful thing, though, when you make the decision and then like two or three days go by and you just have this unspeakable peace over your heart and your mind. It's like, wow, thank you, Lord. I feel good about that decision. Can't always rely on that, but God, that's one of God's promises of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who gives us a peace that surpasses understanding. Wisdom from above is first peaceable, says James. That's the blessed subjective personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. So be decisive. Don't be a wimp. All right, where are we at? Number five, we will pick up next week. So we'll probably go five through ten next week. Um, so I just want to encourage you, man. Step number one, get right with God if you're not. Number two, get a mentor or two to help you, hold you accountable to pursue these things together, these attributes that God expects in our lives and depend totally on him let's go to the father and pray and ask for his help father we thank you for this day again and and so much that we've been able to do exciting things answers to prayer transitions taking place your goodness to us privilege to study your word together god i pray for every male in this congregation today that you would through your holy spirit use the truth of the bible the living word of god to meet them where they are what they need to hear that would resonate with their soul those who don't know you they would repent and come to know jesus personally for those of us who are your children and born again and christians that we would grow in the grace of god aspiring to be godly men who please you no matter where we are in life god we need your help we need your grace we thank you that it's available and we commit all these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.